Once again, we come together to worship the Lord our God via the internet. What a joy it is to be with you. I just wish I could see you face to face. Lord willing, that will happen soon. We come again to the Word of God examining the issue of a biblical perspective of this pandemic that we are experiencing. This is part two. My heart is heavy, as I'm sure yours is, as we think about all that's going on with this pandemic, people that are sick, people that are dying, some of our friends, some of our loved ones. As some of you are aware, um, uh, Andre Kolomitsa, if you remember Andre and Veronica, who's been a part of our church, they're in the military, they don't live here now, but they're still very much a part of our church family. Well, Andre's father, our grandfather, recently passed away because of the coronavirus up in Washington State. I knew him. In fact, he and some of the other family members were at the Shepherds Conference that I attended. Um, and I, I know this family. They're a godly group of Russian uh, immigrants, the part of the largest Russian church, Russian-speaking church in, in the United States. But his grandfather passed away, and they are requesting prayer for other members of their family who have it and who are fighting for their lives. And so this is a very, very serious issue, and all of us are, are grieving over what we are watching. And I'm especially sad for those that don't know Christ. They have no help. They have no hope, no understanding of what God is up to in the grand scheme of things. They've never been reconciled to a holy God through faith in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. They, they are not united to Christ. They know nothing of what it means to be anxious for nothing, as the Apostle Paul tells us. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. People without Christ know nothing of any of this. Apart from genuine saving faith, they have no understanding uh, of themselves. They have no understanding of the world around them, though they think they do. And they know nothing of what it is to rest in the sovereign purposes of a holy and good God. Because we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose, Romans 8.28. So these dear people have no subjective awareness of the love of God, of the peace of God, that, that overwhelming, soul-satisfying joy that we have as believers being united to Christ through faith. So people are afraid. And very often when people are afraid and they feel threatened, their true natures begin to show. And it's fascinating to watch all the things that, are people, that people are doing. They run and buy up all of the toilet paper and they stockpile food. And disasters tend to trigger self-interest and survival instincts. And we see this happening as well. And of course, this can degenerate into just kind of a spontaneous abandonment of societal norms and, and values and 
all of this can degenerate into uh, just an uncontrolled proliferation of, of violence and anarchy. And certainly many people are afraid of this. And if all of this, of course, is rooted in, in man's depraved nature. But people are afraid. This is why gun sales and ammunition sales are completely out the roof. Dear friends, people need the Lord. People need the Lord. They're like sheep without a shepherd. And we need to have compassion for them. We need to pray for them and love them. This was certainly Jesus' heart. We read in Matthew 9:35 that Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And indeed, compassion reflects the deepest heart of the Lord our God. And this pandemic is, is causing many people to panic because they are terrified of death. They're terrified of judgment. In fact, the psalmist tells us in Psalm 73, 19, Oh, how they are brought to desolation, as in a moment they are utterly consumed with terrors. But friends, I might add that this is nothing compared to the eschatological judgments that will one day come upon the world in the days of the tribulation just prior to the second coming of Christ. We read about this, for example, in Revelation chapter 6, beginning in verse 16, where there's a description of those who cry out to the mountains and to the rocks, and they say, fall on us and hide us from the presence of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. And who is able to stand? And the answer will be, no one. And in Luke 21, beginning in verse 26, Jesus says, there will be signs and sun and moon and stars, and on the earth dismay among nations. In perplexity at the roaring of the sea and the waves, men fainting from fear and the expectation of the things which are coming upon the world, for the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. So again, this pandemic, as bad as it is, pales into utter insignificance compared to the horrors of the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments that God will pour out upon the world during the time of tribulation, during that time of judgment. And people without Christ today certainly are afraid. To use another analogy, they are like a ship at sea with, with no rudder, just being blown hither and yon. I remember... When I was a boy, we used to sing a song, and maybe you still sing it, a beautiful old song. I, in fact, I remember George Beverly Shea singing this a lot, and the words go like this, in times like these, you need a Savior. In times like these, you need an anchor. Be very sure, be very sure your anchor holds and grips the solid rock. The chorus goes on to say, this rock is Jesus. Yes, he's the one. This rock is Jesus, the only one. Be very sure, be very sure 
Your anchor holds and grips the solid rock. And it's for this reason that we once again turn to the Word of God for clarity of understanding and to find comfort in these days of distress. We need a biblical perspective of what is happening in the world around us. And by the way, this biblical perspective is going to be highly offensive to those who do not know Christ, those who are alienated from God, those who are depraved in their nature and blinded by sin and Satan. But God's word for the believer, for the Christian, is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And by his commandments, according to Psalm 1911, your servant is warned in keeping them there is great reward. And we're told as well in Proverbs 30 and verse 5 that every word of God is pure. He is a shield for those who put their trust in Him. Now, by way of quick review, last week we learned that all diseases are a consequence of God's curse against sin, a general act of divine judgment upon this fallen and sin-cursed world. We went back to Genesis 3 where God cursed Adam and Eve and all mankind and all of creation. We went to Romans chapter 8 and especially verse 20 where we read that the creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of Him who subjected it. It's interesting, in 1669, four years after the great plague of London, uh, the Black Death that killed about a third of the inhabitants of the British Isles. A book was published entitled Sin, the Plague of Plagues. It was written by Cambridge theologian and Puritan pastor Ralph Vinning. By the way, it was later reprinted in 1993 under the title The Sinfulness of Sin, put out by Banner of Truth Trust. I highly recommend the book. It's the most thorough treatise on sin that has ever been written. But in that day, Vinning said this, This book was begun and almost finished before the late sore and great plague began. And therefore, though for a memorial of it, I have taken occasion to give it a name or title from thence, yet it is not calculated particularly thereunto but with a more general aspect upon the universal mischief that sin has done mankind. As to the sinfulness of sin, he says, I have indeed handled it most fully as it is against man's good and happiness. Well, to be sure, sin is the plague of plagues. It is the original virus that was unleashed upon mankind via the wrath of God upon sinners. And the, the, the COVID-19 pandemic is just a, a mere sample of this. So sin, remember now, is a, a transgression of, of the law of God, which reveals his, his holiness and his justice. And all men have an innate understanding of sin. We're told about this in Romans 2, verses 14 and 15. There we read that the work of the law is written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. And of course, 
the most fundamental of all of God's commandments is to love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love our neighbor as we love ourselves. And yet, because of our sinful nature, we are unable to do this. Man loves himself. He loves the idols that he creates, the false gods that he manufactures. Man is filled with self-will and controlled by self-interest. And by nature, he is a rebel against the Most High God. Therefore, he violates God's law. And because of this, we read in Romans 1 that the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. May I remind you that biblically wrath is one of the attributes of God. And it refers to his intense hatred of sin. In fact, Jesus said in John 3.36, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon him. A horrifying statement. There are five kinds of wrath biblically. I'll give them to you essentially in sequence. The first kind of wrath is what we might call sowing and reaping wrath. We know that when we violate God's physical order or when we violate his moral order, there are consequences. And we see, for example, the ravages of sin as being a part of the curse on creation. As a result, there are pandemics. There are things like AIDS. There's violence. There's war, human suffering, anarchy. You sow the wind, you will reap the whirlwind. But there's another kind of wrath that we read about in Scripture, and that's the wrath of divine abandonment. And that's where man's rejection of God is so complete that his invitation to come is removed and he lifts his restraining grace upon a person or even upon a society and he gives them over or he abandons them to the full expression of their wickedness. And then there's also, thirdly, cataclysmic wrath. We read about this, for example, in the great flood that covered the world. God blotted, blotted out all humanity, save Noah and his family. We read about it in the judgment that he poured out upon Sodom and Gomorrah and the other surrounding cities because of their defiant debauchery, because of their abominations of homosexuality and so forth. We read about uh, cataclysmic wrath with the, the ten plagues that God poured out upon Pharaoh and the Egyptians. And then there's fourthly eschatological wrath that I mentioned a little bit earlier. Future judgments of God in, the, in, for example, the book of Revelation where God pours out his wrath upon the ungodly during the, the tribulation just prior to his second coming and also at the, as well at the end of the millennium. And then finally there's ultimate wrath and that is eternal hell for those who refuse to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as to be saved. But the good news is this, dear Christian, we need not fear the wrath of God. For although we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind, as Paul says in Ephesians 2 and verse 3, we now have trusted in Christ and therefore Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, he delivers us 
from the wrath to come. And what an astounding thing that is to know that the wrath of God we deserve was poured out upon our substitute, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, in order that we might be saved. Now, back to a biblical perspective of this COVID-19 pandemic. Not only are all these diseases a consequence of God's curse upon sin, but secondly, we must understand that God is both sovereign and good, even in pandemics. I might recommend a book, a little book that I've written on this called God, Evil, and Suffering, Understanding God's Role in Tragedies and Atrocities. And there I go into this in great detail. But let me just give you a few thoughts to make sure you understand this from a biblical perspective. Often you will hear people say, well, how can a loving God allow bad things to happen to good people like we see in this, in this pandemic? First of all, may I say that to ask such a question is a profound demonstration of both man's arrogance and his depravity, and it's for two reasons. Number one, it assumes that God owes you an explanation, and number two, it assumes that you could understand it if he gave it to you. But secondly, according to God's standard of righteousness, there's no such thing as a good person. In fact, in the Bible, we read that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In Romans 3, beginning in verse 10, we read that there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. And only the regenerating power of the Spirit of God can change a man's nature so that he will seek after God and will begin to manifest the righteous actions of of Christ based upon what God has done for him by his saving grace. So we must understand that, that God is under no obligation to excuse anyone from the effects of the curse. All men stand guilty before his bar of justice, and all men are fallen and live in a fallen world. So rather than asking, why do bad things happen to good people, we really need to ask, why do good things happen to bad people? But thirdly, we must understand that the only good, the only perfectly righteous person to ever live was Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son of God. Yet on the cross of Calvary, the full measure of the wrath of God for sin was exhausted upon the sinless Savior when he was delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God in Acts 2.23. Now, some want to vindicate God's goodness and providence in view of the existence of evil, including diseases, by saying, well, you know, because God is love, he's not responsible for any of these things. All of this just kind of catches him by surprise. He has to, in fact, learn from these things. He just reacts to these things. And this is called process theology. And then there's another view that says God merely just allows these things to happen. And he knows what is happening, but but he chooses not to exercise his power to stop 
these bad things that happen. Of course, this is the classic Arminian view that is by far the most popular default opinion among Christians today. But I would submit to you humbly that neither of these positions are biblical because what we see in Scripture is that God is both sovereign as well as omniscient. Regarding His sovereignty, we must remember that He is the one who, according to Isaiah 46.10, declares the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. And We read how Daniel described God as the one who does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth. And no one can ward off His hand or say to Him, What have you done? Daniel 4.35 Moreover, the prophet Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 45, beginning in verse 6, what the Lord says. And here it is. I am the Lord. There is none other. Besides me, there is no God, the one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And Likewise, the prophet Jeremiah lamented in Lamentations 3.38, Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and ill go forth? Hannah praised God's sovereignty even over evil when she prayed in 1 Samuel 2, 6, The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and rich. He brings low and He exalts. And the prophet Amos tells us in Amos chapter 3 and verse 6, If a calamity occurs in a city, has not the Lord done it? And when Job suffered in the ways that he did, You will recall that he said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Beloved, we must remember that despite what happens in the world around us, our God reigns in absolute sovereignty over all of his creation. Nothing catches him by surprise. He is the one who works all things after the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1.11 But God is not only sovereign, He is also omniscient. In other words, He knows all things. And by the way, this also brings great comfort to the believer. In Psalm 33, beginning in verse 13, we read, The Lord looks from heaven. He sees all the sons of men. From His dwelling place, He looks out on all the the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all. He who understands all their work. And in Psalm 147, the Lord is praised as the one who heals the brokenhearted, as the one who, quote, counts the number of the stars. He gives names to all of them. Great is the Lord and abundant in strength. His understanding is infinite. Verse 4. There is nothing that man can think. There is nothing that man can do that can any way escape his notice including tragedies and atrocities and pandemics. According to Proverbs 5.21, For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. And in Proverbs 15, verse 3, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, watching the evil and the good. 
And in Isaiah 40, verse 28, we read that his understanding is inscrutable. In Hebrews 4, verse 13, we read, There is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And in 1 John 3, 19, you have a summary of it all. There we read, He knows everything. So God has affirmed in his word that he is indeed, he has indeed ordained to allow evil to enter into his perfect universe through the voluntary choices of moral creatures, including Satan who tempted Adam and Eve. And why did he do this? In order to dramatically display his glory through his holiness and through his wrath and through his mercy and grace and love and power. And what a great source of comfort this is to the redeemed, especially those who are experiencing such profound heartache and loss during these times. And knowing God is fully aware of and in charge of all things instantly delegitimizes any thoughts of of his abandonment or, or indifference towards our situation or randomness in what is happening. Nothing catches him by surprise, not even this pandemic. He has ordained to allow it to happen for his own purposes. Indeed, he is a sovereign God. He is not a contingent God. There is therefore nothing in our life that he has not ordained to allow, nor is there anything that he doesn't understand completely. And so therefore, dear friends, his character is in no need of rescue, nor is it even remotely worthy of attack. So when we consider God's role in suffering, even in this pandemic, we must accept the compatibility of God's infinite love and goodness. D.A. Carson states it this way, quote, God is less interested in answering our questions than in other things, securing our allegiance, establishing our faith, nurturing a desire for holiness. An important part of spiritual maturity is bound up with this obvious truth. He goes on to say, God tells us a great deal about himself, but the mysteries that remain are not going to be answered at a merely theoretical and intellectual level. We may probe a little around the edges using the minds God has given us to glimpse something of his glory, but ultimately the Christian will take refuge from questions about God, not in proud, omniscient explanations, but in adoring worship. And certainly that must be our heart. And so again, all diseases are a consequence of God's curse against sin. Secondly, God is both sovereign and good, even in pandemics. And thirdly, God uses pandemics to call sinners to repentance. Isn't it interesting how a disaster is just an instant wake-up call to those who are spiritually asleep? You know, the unsaved do not want to face their own mortality. They do not want to face the prospect of standing before a holy God. And yet all of us know, the saved and the unsaved, that we are ultimately going to die some sooner than others. And I find it interesting, God tells us in Ecclesiastes 3 and verse 11, that he has set eternity in the heart of man. 
In other words, God made man for his eternal purposes, and man knows it. But sinful man, apart from God, apart from Christ, does not want to think about it. And for this reason, when a pandemic comes along, it strikes terror in the souls of the unregenerate. But I might add that God takes no pleasure in this. He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Ezekiel tells us in chapter 18, verse 23, Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God? Rather than that, he should turn from his ways and live. Now, this is what is so important for men and women to understand. For those of us who obey God's command and believe in Christ, we, 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 we know that we are ultimately, even though we're going to die, we're going to go to heaven. But we must remember that all men, including ourselves, are on borrowed time. We live on borrowed time. And I want you to notice how this pandemic disease strikes all people indiscriminately. God is not using the coronavirus to target any specific people group because this group is more sinful than some other group. In fact, what we see in the world in which we live is that accidents and natural disasters and violence are no respecters of persons, including Christians. In fact, Job tells us in Job 14.1, man who is born of woman is short-lived and full of turmoil. Bad things happen to all people because all people live in a fallen world. And this is all a, always a reminder that we are going to die. And this pandemic is a reminder of that. And therefore, it shouts at all of us that we better be ready. We better be prepared to stand before God's holy bar of justice. In Hebrews 9 and verse 27, we read that it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. But the calamities that befall man during this dispensation of redemptive history, those calamities are, are, are not targeted judgments against those who are more deserving than others. In fact, Jesus addressed this truth in John or in Luke chapter 13, where he brought to the attention of his disciples a specific incident that occurred where Pontius Pilate, who was the, the Roman governor of Judea, brutally murdered some of the Galilean Jews while they were offering sacrifices. And here's what we read in Luke 13. And Jesus said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered this fate? You see, he knew in their mind that's what they were thinking. But he answers his own question and says, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And of course, this was a warning to the Jews who saw themselves as morally superior to, to those who suffer some great atrocity. And this, by the way, was also a prophecy of the destruction that was going to come upon Jerusalem in A.D. 70 at the hands of the Romans. But then it's interesting, Jesus went on to make the point even further by reminding them of, of a tower that had collapsed and killed some people. And so he says, or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits 
than all the men who live in Jerusalem? Once again, he knows that's what they're thinking. But his answer is, I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Again, dear friends, we must understand that God doesn't use disasters or calamities or, or pandemics to somehow target certain people who are more deserving than others of death. But rather, all of these things are warnings to all sinners that death is going to come. It's going to come to all of us, so we better be ready. Unsaved men and women who are still alive today are alive simply because they are experiencing the compassion of a merciful God who is withholding what they deserve, what we all deserve in death, for he is patient toward them, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance, Second Peter 3.9. And certainly this is the sermon that this pandemic is preaching, a message of repentance, Repentance is an important term to bear in mind. You don't hear much about it these days. In the Old Testament, in the Hebrew language, there's really two terms that were used. One was nakam, which carries the idea of, of the emotional component of repentance. It means to be deeply grieved, to be sorrowful. For example, while in an ash heap, Job declared his deep sorrow over sin, saying, Therefore I retract and I repent, nacham, I repent in dust and ashes. So genuine repentance includes appropriate shame and humiliation. But there's another Hebrew term, shub, it means to turn back or to return. So repentance also carries the idea of, of turning away from sin, forsaking a path of wickedness, turning unto God, amending one's deeds, reputing all known sin, being willing and wanting and desiring to keep God's command. And when you come to the New Testament, there is a Greek term that is used for repentance, metanaeo, and it is a term that, that means to, to change one's mind. Now, this is more than just some intellectual change. It carries the idea of the inner consciousness of the whole man, a change of attitude towards sin. And so biblically, when we put all of this together, God's definition of repentance is that man must be deeply grieved over how he has violated God's holy law. He must agree with God's diagnosis that indeed we are a wretched people deserving of his wrath and powerless to save ourselves. But it also acknowledges that Jesus Christ is the only Savior. So we not only turn from sin, but we turn to Christ who bore the sins of all who would believe in him. And certainly this is my plea to anyone that might be listening that does not know Jesus as Savior and serve him as Lord. This pandemic may not take you, but something will. One day, you will die. So we need to make sure that we are ready. You must place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the only Savior. But according to Hebrews 10 and verse 26, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, which you have just heard, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, 
but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. So indeed, God uses pandemics to call sinners to repentance, but fourthly, He uses them to test the faith of the redeemed and animate our love for the lost. My, how this thing grieves my heart as I'm sure it does you as well. In fact, I was just reading how hundreds of people in Iran have died because they believe some rumor about methanol, a methanol-based alcohol that would, that would ward off the coronavirus, so they drank it, and many of them have died. Many others are terribly ill. People are desperate to stay alive, yet so many are dying around the world. But you know, as believers, when we look at this disease and see how it might even impact our own family. It tests our faith. And when our faith is tested, we cry out to God and we say, Father, I I beg you to save my family. I beg you to heal us of this disease or to protect us from it. But I know that you are a sovereign God and that you're a good God and that ultimately anything that happens to me you have ordained to allow to dramatically put your glory on display in my life. You don't owe me an explanation. I couldn't understand it if you gave it to me. But what I know is this. You have loved me with an everlasting love, and I will trust you come what may. And I know that if I die, it will simply be an opportunity to enter into your presence forevermore. Beloved, this is the type of faith that is tested when these great difficulties come into our life. We also find ourselves having an animated zeal for evangelism. Don't you just long to be able to come to these people who are so terrified and give them the hope of the gospel? To explain some of these things and to say, please place your faith in Christ. In Isaiah chapter 55, we read about an invitation that God gave to his people, Israel, and ultimately to all of us, an invitation to embrace his free grace and mercy available to all those who who seek him. And certainly in this time of, of pandemic, we are reminded of not only how much God hates sin, but also how much He loves sinners. And this passage in Isaiah 55 speaks to this. He speaks to how those who come to Him in repentance, repentant faith He will save. Beginning in verse 6, it says, Seek the Lord while He may be found. Call upon Him while He is near. Let the wicked forsake His way and the unrighteous man His thoughts. And let Him return to the Lord. And he will have compassion on him and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. And then he says this, for my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. Unfortunately, we often use this last sentence as a way of describing the mysteries of divine providence, and certainly that's a glorious truth. 
when we're faced with unexplained tragedies, we will often go to this text and we'll kind of say, boy, I don't know what God's doing here. His thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. But beloved, may I say to you that that is not what is being referred to to here. What is inexplicable is not God's mysteries in providence. What is inexplicable is his great compassion for sinners. That's the point of the passage. What we see at the beginning of this invitation is the Lord saying, seek me while I may be found. Seek the Lord while he may be found. In other words, before it's too late. Why? So that I can save you. He's crying out, forsake your wicked ways and your unrighteous thoughts. Return to the Lord. Why? Verse 7, that he might have compassion on him, for he will abundantly pardon. Oh, dear friends, think of this. What astounding hope there is in Christ. What love we see in the heart of God. We deserve wrath, but what does he offer us? He offers us his compassion, a full pardon. This is utterly incomprehensible. What manner of love is this? Beloved, we cannot even begin to fathom God's infinite compassion and desire to forgive sin, to abundantly pardon. And yet this is who he is. This is what he does. To think that he would send his son and to think that the son would bear our sins in his body to exchange our unrighteousness for his righteousness. This is at the heart of amazing grace. Dear Christian, our apprehension of God's condescending love is so pathetically shallow. He delights in mercy and grace. This is his very heart. His desire to lower himself to our lowly estate is beyond our comprehension. That's the point of the passage. A few chapters later in Isaiah, the Spirit of God speaks through his prophet again on this subject, and he said, for thus says the high and exalted one. My, you can't get any higher than that, can you? Who lives forever, whose name is holy. Here's what he says. I dwell in a high and holy place and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So even though he lives in a high and exalted place that we cannot even begin to fathom, yet he also inhabits those who seek after him in repentant faith. Oh, dear sinner, won't you come to Christ before it's too late? And oh, dear Christian, won't you pray for those who need Christ? Won't you be salt and light in the midst of this pandemic? In his sermon, The Most High, A Prayer-Hearing God, Jonathan Edwards, who lived between 1703 and 1758, preached on this issue in the context of, quote, a fast appointed on the account of epidemical sickness at the eastward of Boston. That was a reference to 
the epidemic of smallpox that was killing many. And his text was, O thou that hears prayer, out of Psalm 65 two. Here's a small part of what he said during that epidemic that can speak to all of our hearts. He said, why is God so ready to hear the prayers of men? To this I answer, because he is a God of infinite grace and mercy. It is indeed a very wonderful thing that so great a God should be so ready to hear our prayers, though we are so despicable and unworthy, that he should give free access at all times to everyone, should allow us to be importunate without esteeming it an indecent boldness, and should be so rich in mercy to them that call upon him, that worms of the dust should have such power with God by prayer that he should do such great things in answer to their prayers and should show himself, as it were, overcome by them. He went on to say, this is very wonderful. When we consider the distance between God and us, how we have provoked him by our sins and are unworthy, we are of the least gracious notice, it cannot be from any need that God stands in of us, for our goodness extends not to him. Neither can it be from anything in us to incline the heart of God to us. It cannot be from any worthiness in our prayers, which are in themselves polluted things. But, he says, it is because God delights in mercy and condescension. He is herein infinitely distinguished from all other gods. He is the great fountain of all good from whom goodness flows as light from the sun. Indeed, his ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. He condescends in ways that we cannot imagine. And knowing, as, as Edward says, that God delights in mercy and condescension. Dear friends, can there be any better reason, any greater reason to come to him in prayer? To cry out before him with our supplications and with our praise. And frankly, the blessings we receive from his beneficence are secondary when compared to the glory that he enjoys and receives when he gives to us. Well, may all of us live in a state of intimate communion with the Lord our God during this dark season. And may we be faithful to rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus, as Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5, 16. And dear friends, may we all maintain a biblical perspective during this time of great fear and sorrow and be willing to share these great truths to those who have ears to hear, being fully aware that all diseases are a consequence of God's curse against sin that God is both sovereign and good, even in pandemics. And to remember that God uses pandemics to call sinners to repentance, but he also uses them to test the faith of the redeemed and to animate our love for the lost. 
May this be true of all of us, by God's grace, by His power, and for His glory. Will you join me in prayer? Father, I pray that you will take these eternal truths and that you will seal them in our hearts in such a special way that they motivate all that we think, all that we say, all that we do. That sinners will be converted and that saints may enjoy more fully every expression of your grace that you have lavished upon us because of your incomprehensible love. And for this, we give you thanks from the very depths of our heart. And finally, Lord, I would pray once again for those who are suffering from this pandemic. Be merciful. Oh, God, use it to save many and to ultimately bring glory to your name. Protect our church family Protect those that we know and love who are suffering from this illness. Comfort those that we know and love who have lost loved ones. And ultimately use this to demonstrate your glory and grace once again in our hearts. I ask all of this in the precious name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to the teaching ministry of Calvary Bible Church in Jolton, Tennessee. For more information on Calvary Bible Church or for more audio, please visit our website at cbctn.org.